All right, well, um, how many of you were here last night? Let me see your hands. Okay, raise your hand if you weren't here. Okay, great. Um, well, I want to say that it's an honor to be with you. To have your attention is very important to me. I don't take it lightly. I remember Leonard Ravenhill told his son, he said, when you preach and you waste an hour, you're not just wasting an hour of your life. You're wasting an hour for every single person. You'll give an account for it. So I just want to uh, let you know I take this very seriously. And I want to just submit to you that I've heard something specific from the Lord that I want to share with you. And I believe that it is right on time. Uh, I remember a story our my Bible school teacher told me. He said a couple came over to his house and they said, has the Lord spoken to you about a certain matter? And uh, he says, no, the Lord hasn't spoken to me, but I'll give you my opinion. And his wife yells from the kitchen, they didn't ask you for your opinion. <laughs> uh, I say that to say that I, I'm not coming to you today with an opinion. I'm coming you, to you today with the word of the Lord to share with you the thoughts of God, the realities of the spirit, the truths of the scriptures that we can bank our whole lives on. We can throw complete anchor upon the things that I'm going to say today because they are not my words. They are words that have already been written and they've lasted all this time. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from the words that are that I'm going to speak to you today. I will echo only those things that Christ himself has said are spirit and life. And, and if you, by humility, as the scripture says in James, that by humility you receive the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But if you will humble yourself today with me underneath the word, all of us will be changed by the power of the word of God. <laughs> you know, the power isn't even in how the words are said. The power isn't in the eloquence. The power isn't in the, what is it, the, uh, the diction of how you say your words. The power is in what has been written and this is what changes men. When Jesus was tempted, he responds to temptation by it is written. And it's so funny that it's, well, it is Christ's understanding of what is written that protected him in temptation. But then it's not just that he knew what was written. He knew the context of what was written. So it's one thing to know what's written. It's another thing to know the context of what's written. Why? Because the devil came back to Christ and he goes, it is written. And if you don't, if you only know what's written and you don't know context of what's written, then you are in one side exposed. But if you'll know what is written and you'll know the context of what's written, you can be protected on both sides. How many know the devil wants to take the scriptures and twist them? This is why context is king in a sense. Now, Jesus is king, but the reality of the king is revealed in the context of what we're talking about. So I want to talk to you today about the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what the entire biblical corpus is about. This man who is God and what he has done. Praise God. And so when we think of the beauty of Christ, there's a quote that comes to my mind from Jonathan Edwards. He actually says, the beauty of Christ bows the will and draws the heart. Just say this with me. Say the beauty of Christ. It bows the will. And it draws the heart. When you think of that statement, Edward said, isn't this literally just giving language to the psalmist? When you look at the psalmist's songs of love to God and in peril and in presence and in decisions that need to be made and he's worshiping the Lord. Do you not see over and over again? He's recalling the beauty of his God 
And in that, his heart is drawn like the deer after the water, Brooks. He says, my soul longs for you. There's a drawing in seeing the Lord. And then you see the submission to God. He says, I delight to do your will, oh God. And Jesus quotes that later on in the New Testament. So you see the drawing of the heart. His, his heart love is drawn out by looking at the beauty of his God. And his submission, his, Lord, I bow my knee to you. He even writes that beautiful psalm. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. David writes these things. Why? Because he sees the beauty of God and it draws his heart love and it bows his knee to him. I believe that the lack of a bowing knee is a bad view of God. Uh, the, when the heart isn't drawn in love to God, it's because it doesn't see him. Because Christ's beauty is irresistible. You see his beauty and it just draws you in. This is why the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians, you see that the devil's whole agenda is exposed when it says the God of this world blinds the minds, blinds the minds. So for some reason, so that they will not see the glory of Jesus Christ. If they see the glory of Jesus Christ, their wills will bow and their hearts will be drawn and the devil has no chance. So his whole goal is blind them. Stop them from seeing him as he in fact is. Because if they see him, they will follow him. And they will love him. They will live their lives for him. They will be like the martyrs who in the crackle of the flames sung of his infinite charms. And they will realize him to be exactly what he is. The scripture text that I want to jump off from today is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'll just, uh, you don't have to turn that, I'll just read it to you. It says, God, listen to these words, God was in Christ <laughs> reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Praise God. It says God was in Christ. God was in. There's this weird thought today in Christianity that God is like angry and he hates you. And Jesus is coming pleading with God not to kill you. God was in Christ. It, it says God so loved the world that he gave his son. God the Father is the origin of the love and the sending of the Son. There's not a separation where Jesus loves you and God is just kind of tolerating you. It is God who sends Jesus. God the Father is the love that causes Christ to, to be made manifest in the flesh. Praise God. God was in Christ. And let me just talk to you about three things. Let's, let's look at the beauty of Christ in three ways. One, what he is. Two, what he's like. And three, what he's done. 
My goodness, these things make praise. These thoughts cause worship. These things that we're going to talk about even here and look at, bow the will and draw the heart. It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think of God, that's the most important thing about you. Why? Because that's going to determine how you live your life. I remember when I walked into the Browns Revival Sanctuary in Pensacola, soon as I walked in, what I stepped into was what I like to call a confrontation with the reality of God. The presence of the Spirit was a conviction. And when I say conviction, I mean a total convincing that God is real. Now, what are you going to do about it? That's what conviction was for me. I stepped into the reality, the face-to-face with this. God is real. What are you going to do about that? And so the reality of God, what you think of God, that's the most important thing about you. And if you don't see Jesus Christ... If you don't see Jesus Christ, you're going to come up with weird views of God. But God has placed himself inside of the restrictions and frailties of a human body to reveal to you the exact image of his glory and who, what he's like. We're going to get into this in a second, but this, this is what's important. A.W. Tozer writes this, idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. My goodness, what a, what a statement. Idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It was the old deceased prophet Art Art Katz who said this, Is not the root of all of our ills the failure to radically apprehend God as he is? Say, Eric, what does that even mean? It means all your problems go back to what you think about God in a bad manner. If you don't think God to be what he is, that's the root of all of these issues of worry, fear, and doubt, and unbelief, and all this. It's to see him as he is that is most important. So the first thing we look at is what he is, and then we'll hit what he's like, and then we'll hit what he's done. And I'll go through this quickly. It doesn't even need much exposition because it's potent with power. Now, just to save time, too, I'm just going to speak out the scriptures instead of going to the references. Is that okay? So when we talk about what he is, this must be kept in the forefront of our minds. Sometimes when I go pray, I get convicted by the spirit that I forget what, who, what he is, who I'm with right now. Sometimes I sit down and I just start talking to the Lord and, you know, I'm like there. And then all of a sudden it hits me. Holy moly. The person who's in this room with me is sustaining the air that I'm breathing as I'm here. He's causing me to stay on the ground and not combust. He's keeping me this whole time. The Bible says the, by him, the whole world is held together. And so it hits me in a moment. I'm just like, oh, snap. I worship you, Lord. I worship you. Not out of fear, though there is an element of fear. And there should be an element of fear. Jesus says, don't fear him who kills the body and cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. So Jesus is not, he's not saying, you know how they say today, the fear of God doesn't have a trembling in it. You're not actually afraid. Yes, there is an element of the fear of the Lord that is intimacy with him and it is nearness to him. It is respect of him. But there is an element of shudder, especially if you read the book of Revelation and you see what he's capable of in a moment of actually opening up a hole in the earth. And then all of these animals that have teeth like lions and hair like 
women and they have tails with, with scorpions and they go out into all the world and they blot out the sun and they go and they sting people and the Abaddon who actually serves the Lord, this angel of death, is released by Christ. This is crazy. You say, what are you talking about? Read the book of Revelation. It should cause you to tremble a little bit. It should cause your knees to buckle a bit and say, this is who we're dealing with here. Let me just save you the suspense. God's throne is not under siege. This whole thing is planned out. And I'm going to say a statement that's probably going to make some people upset, but the Bible is very clear in the sovereignty and glory of our God. The ongoing existence of Satan is on purpose. Don't you think he could just go like this and the whole thing is done? As a matter of fact, when Jesus returns, the Bible says he opens his mouth and by the breath of his mouth, he slays evil. Just one breath. This is all he does. The whole thing's done. The scripture says the, the nations gather against him when he stands in Israel, when he stands as a king. All the nations, think of the heavy artillery and what will be here when he, atomic bombs, you know, we know of now. What, what's going to be here when he does come? And they all gather around him. You know what he does? He breathes out and they all are slayed. And then he calls this day called the day of the birds, he says. He goes, I'm going to create a day called the day of the birds. And I will feed all the birds with the flesh of the kings of the earth. That's what I'm going to do. You say, Eric, where are you getting this from? Read the Bible and see that the book of Revelation causes your knees to shudder and say, this is who I'm dealing with. This is my God. Praise God. Praise God. Who are we talking about? We're talking about him who the Bible says this. The Bible says that his name is great. And it is greatly to be praised. The Bible says that he is incomparable in this, that he does little things like calculating the dust of the earth. Do you understand what, what we just said? The, the little bit of dust that remains on this, he knows every ounce of dust, every gram of dust that's on the entire planet, not just this room. <laughs> you say, Eric, what does that even, why even emphasize it? That is a knowledge beyond compare. The places we haven't even been to, he knows the dust that's in that room. That's crazy. There's a, there's a thought these days called uh, Molinism. You might have heard of it. But what the, the whole understanding of Molinism is that God is so wise that he knows every single possibility of every single situation that, is, that could happen. And by this makes his decisions. By full knowledge of anything and everything that could ever be. That's incredible. That thought right there makes me throw up my hands and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it means he puts Pharaoh there on purpose to accomplish his purposes and manifest his glory. My goodness. Isn't that, that's why he can say things as crazy as this. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, your, Nebuchadnezzar's evil. God says, yeah, I use this guy. <laughs> can you believe that? The Bible tells us he puts a king up and then he puts another one down. What in the world are we talking about when we talk about God Almighty? Praise God. The Bible tells us things like this. The Bible says that he sits above the circle of the earth. The Bible says that he can clear the heavens with an exhale. Okay, now let's just think about this for a second. You know, Charles Spurgeon said there isn't an item on the earth that transcends the smallest item in the heavens. And then he says, but there isn't an item in the heavens that excels the smallest measure of Jesus. 
He's trying to show you that the superiority of Christ is far above the heavens. As the scriptures say, he set his glory even above the heavens. Let's just talk about this for a second. Psalm 145 says that God humbles himself to look upon not just the earth, the heavens. I mean, if an angel appeared in this room, all of us would probably fall down scared out of our minds. Because he'd be massive and he'd be shining with glory. The scriptures call them crimson. You, you remember how when, when the, the prophet Ezekiel sees the angel that comes to him, he's glowing like a burning flame and he's freaking out when he sees him. When you think about John, the revelator, when the angel shows him the, the new city of, made of glorious gold that you can see through, the cube city of the world to come, my gosh. When he sees this, he falls down on his face, and the angel says, bro, get up. Get up. I'm, I serve you. I, I'm not even God. He's like, this. you're falling down before me because of the split. Listen, God humbles himself to even pay attention to what the angels are doing. This is what the scriptures tell. That's how great he is. The scriptures tell us that he made those stars, those heavenly flames. He counts their numbers and knows their names. And by his power, not one of them go missing. The Bible tells us he never gets tired. He sets one king up. He puts another one down. The Bible says that the nations are meaningless before him like a drop inside of a bucket. This is who we're talking about when we say who he is. The Bible says that he made the earth by his own power. He established the world by his own wisdom. You hear that statement and you think, yeah, I get it. Think about this for a second. Think about the wisdom that the ocean represents by cleaning itself with sea and movement. The movement of the salt. and I think that's wisdom. You think of the wisdom of a flower blossoming. But that all comes from God. You think about the wisdom of a, of a bird. Like the intelligence of a hawk. God installed all that stuff. You know, when a, when a deer is born, that it comes out walking. That's a wisdom by God. The Bible tells us he tells the ostrich where to lay its egg. The Bible says that he tells the lion to wait in the thicket. When he's, when he's hunting. In other words, the wisdom the lion has to feed itself comes from God. God has literally permeated the entirety of existence with his own consciousness and then caused all these things personally involved to manifest themselves, manifest his wisdom in, in their own way. The human brain isn't even understood yet. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to point to this, that the establishment of the world by his own wisdom should cause worship. Not only that, but the Bible says that he stretched out the heavens by his own understanding. He speaks and there's a tumult in the heavens. The Bible says he makes lightning for the rain. One of the prophets called God the maker of the storm clouds. How cool is that? And I don't think these things are poetry. I think these things are reality. That our God is like this. The Bible tells us that he puts the wind in storehouses. What does that even mean? I don't even know. He puts the wind in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to store it some. What does that even look like? The Bible tells us that he tells the snow to fall to the earth. You guys get snow here, don't you? Well, he says to Florida, no snow. The Bible says that he surrounds himself with lightning and the sound of his lightnings declare his presence. Next time you hear thunder, say to yourself, the Lord is declaring that he is here. You say, Eric, no, but those are just natural phenomenon. Who is the origin of all of these things? And I'll tell you, it's not just a mechanical involvement. 
He's personally involved. Mechanical involvement would be like he's set in motion these laws and they just kind of work by themselves. No, that's not how he is. He's personally involved because the scripture says he causes every blade of grass to grow. The Bible tells us he feeds all the cows. What is this? This God, he's like an all-pervading consciousness involved in everything in his own world. Isn't this wild? The mountains wax in the presence of the Lord. They just melt. He, he says, I, listen to this, I fill the heavens and the earth. There's nowhere you can go where he is not. He fills the heavens and the earth. He doesn't just declare the things before they happen. He declares the end from the beginning. Who is this king of glory? Who is this who holds the wind in his fist, sits in bliss and gives life by kisses? This is the king of glory. Praise God. None can deliver out of his hand. The scripture says his purposes cannot be thwarted. The scripture says that no one can reverse what he does. Are you hearing these statements? These are all strong statements and I'm saying them repeatedly right after each other. But just to even meditate on one of them causes worship to rise up. Isaiah's last prophecy, he says that all the earth will come and bow down before him. One day he will reveal himself to everything and it will all fall at once before him. The scripture tells us in Isaiah 45, actually nine times in Isaiah 45, he says there is no God besides me. He declares his own greatness. And he says, who can counsel me? He says, to whom will you liken me? He says, can you find an equal to me? (laughs) Oh man, this creates worship in the heart and in the life. The scripture tells us that he is the potter and we are the clay. And then it says, what right does the clay have to say to the potter for me like this? Wow. Wow. This moves me and causes me to say with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways or your paths or the things that you do. I can't even begin to dissect the stuff that you do because it is so far beyond me, far, so far beyond uh, humanity for who has known the mind of the Lord. So he's, un- he's unmatched. He's unparalleled. There's nothing too difficult for him. Now, these next four statements, this will be the last thing I say on this, and then we'll quickly go through the next two. We'll be done. But listen to these four statements. If we could just believe one of these, our whole lives would be changed. These are all directly from the Scriptures. It says, the Scriptures tell us all, listen to these words, guys. This is crazy. If you believe this, this should cause each of us, by faith, to enter into a realm of trust that we've never known before. The Bible says, all things are his servants. I'm not making this up. This is scripture. The scripture says, his, he sits in the heavens and he does whatever it is that he pleases. Listen to this one. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. How about this one? His sovereignty rules over all. None of his purposes can be thwarted. Who in the world are we talking about when we talk about God? It should cause us to tremble in the knees and fall down to the floor and say, I worship you, almighty God. There is none like you. When we begin to believe these things, we see that worry is the seed of atheism. 
When we believe these things, we begin to see that fear is an assault on his character. When we believe these things, we begin to see that works are an insult to his gospel. When we believe these things, we see that disobedience is pure insanity. Because we see who God is. And just for the sake of time, I'll just rush really quickly through what he's like. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, he reveals himself to Moses. And he says that he is gracious and compassionate. You know, this word compassion moves my heart because the word compassion means attracted to weakness. This great and powerful being that we're talking about, this isn't a different person now that we're talking about. We're talking about the same person who makes lightning for the rain and does whatever he wishes in the heavens. His heart, that great, that great being, his heart is Attracted to your weaknesses. Oh my goodness. That he is gracious to you. And compassionate to you. Full of love for you. That his loving kindness lasts for a thousand generations. That his love is so great that it is manifested in what he has done. And it is this. Dropping down out of heaven by the weight of love into the restrictions and frailties of a human body. That alone is a manifestation of humility that can't be matched. Just him dropping down into a human body. That is a, that is a perfect example of, that is actually, let's say, the highest example of God's compassion that he would become a man. I remember hearing Billy Graham, he talked about if you wanted to communicate with the ants, in order to communicate with the ants, because you're so superior to them, you can't really communicate with them, you'd have to drop down and become an ant so that you can speak to the ants. (laughs) And he says, that's what God has done. He's dropped down into humanity to be able to speak directly with eyeball to eyeball, face to face, with breath and beating heart. Speaking to his own people and then living a life that they could never live and then dying in their place to impute to them, to give to them the perfect life that he lived. He then credits it to your account. That right there is a display of compassion that is unmatched. It's even hard to grasp completely. But that's what we see when we see Jesus Christ. There's a quote in John 14. Jesus says to uh, Philip, he says, Philip, have I, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me? This is the indictment, I think, against the church. Is that Christ has been in our midst for so long yet so few know him. And that you say, what, what's the context? Or the context is they say, show me the Father. And Jesus is like, do you not see me? You want to know what God's like? Look right here. I dropped down out of the sky from the throne of glory on high to stand before you and deliver to you the words of God to show you the nature and the character of God. I'm right here. I, I Show us the Father. Have I been with you so long and you don't even know me? 
In other words, this humility, this compassion is so great, you can stare at it in the face and still not recognize it. But if we'll call to remembrance the gospel, the glorious gospel, that God has become a man. And as the scripture says there, it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. There is nothing like this. This is unmatched, unparalleled. You, you, can't, even, you can't even begin to, to, to match it. I'm going to read a poem, and then what I'd love to do if we can is, is just worship the Lord for a couple of minutes. Is that all right? And, and, and when we begin to worship, this is what I'm looking for us to do today. For us to forget ourselves. And just for the next little bit, we'll, we'll take maybe 10 minutes. Is that okay? And we'll just worship God. And forget about the person to your right and to your left. Forget about people being able to hear you or see you. And just begin to give him the kind of love and worship that he deserves as this all-supreme, all-sufficient being dropping down into a human body, suffering and dying for you, raising to life for you, ascending on high to take you up there with himself, and then dropping his own spirit into your being so that you can live with him forever and ever and ever. I wrote this poem down. I see the God man hanging there with his bloody matted hair, sinners passing without a care. The Pharisees in satisfaction stare naked. He drips blood there. He shivers his palms tear, suffocating between the pair. I'm increasingly aware of the fairest love beyond compare. Oh, at the re- at his rebuke, the sea turns dry. His fingers paint the very colored sky, guiding the streams. You feed the bird, and your hands are the depths of the earth, sending lightning and rain wherever you wish. You color the coral, the shimmering fish. You know every grain of sand, the gallons of sea, the song of the dove, the sigh of the free. The hearts of men lay open before you. All thoughts and intents are all known to you. These are wonders, but I'm at a loss knowing that you Hung off a cross, bleeding, gasping, a final breath, and then resurrected to life to conquer death, ascending on high to the right hand of God, and soon to return with an iron rod. I kiss you now, not just for fear, but for all of your beauty that I feel, I see, and I hear. Praise God. 